0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'll be talking to an astrophysicist who'll be launching a state-of-the-art telescope on a balloon. And we'll remember a physicist who is a pioneer of neutron science and a staunch advocate of scholarly publishing. But first, a word from our sponsor – This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? Starting in September, the ECS will offer a virtual short course series designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. Topics include fundamentals of electrochemistry, lithium-ion battery safety, advanced impedance spectroscopy, and electrochemical capacitor technology. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org/education and click short course to learn more. Last week, we lost the physicist Sir John Enderby, who died age 90. We were very lucky to count John as a colleague here at Institute of Physics Publishing, where he was chief scientist for many years, helping to shape our portfolio of scientific journals. I'm joined by my colleague Tim Smith, Associate Director at IOPP, who worked with John for many years. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Hamish. Really pleased to have the opportunity to to join you now and to to reflect on some of my experiences of working with John over over the years.
0: So, Tim, John was very passionate about scholarly publishing and, and indeed the IOPP. How is this uh, passion reflected in how he approached his role as chief scientist?
1: Well, I want to first just, just quickly say that actually John was one of the major reasons that I joined IOP Publishing um, over twenty over twenty years ago. I joined back in two thousand, and at that time when I joined IOP Publishing, he was editor in chief of our flagship condensed matter journal, Journal of Physics: Condensed Matter. Um, so when I applied for the position as a as a publishing editor back in two thousand. Um, knowing that Sir John was the editor-in-chief of the journal that I was going to be working on was really a significant factor in in me wanting to join IOP Publishing and specifically to work on on that journal. So that, for me, was a real real treat. But in terms of his overall approach generally, both as editor-in-chief of that journal and then his wider role as chief scientific advisor, I think John had a real modernising force within IOP Publishing. He really recognised the role of society publishers in the broader scholarly scientific ecosystem, and for me, what really struck home was his breadth of thinking, whether it was regarding the science and of course, we all knew his specialisms, but he was also very broad um, in the way in which he he brought in all the other areas, specifically condensed matter, but then beyond that to the other other aspects of the physical sciences more generally. His network um, globally was was truly significant. Um, um, but I think, you know, that modernizing force, the way in which he modernized not just one journal, but some of our editorial enterprises in in general. Um, and of course, I'm sure, you know, lots of people have been saying over the last few days, just what a, a fantastic person to know and work with that Sir John was. He really empowered people, not just the staff with IP publishing, but the academics that he that he worked with. And for me, as a source of information and inspiration, actually, in some of the projects I was involved with later on in my career uh, at IP Publishing, such as launching new journals in areas quite removed from condensed matter, I always felt John was a a key person for me to, to sit down and talk with, and he was always available. I mean, a very, very busy guy in demand through lots of people, not just within IP Publishing, but his wider activities within science. And academia and publishing, um, but always somebody willing to to listen, um, spare their time, and offer really fantastic advice. And you know, I'm speaking quite personally now, but I think if you speak to any IOP publishing member of staff who worked with John over the last few years, um, they would say very similar things about his his, his knowledge, but also his style as well. And that was brought to the role.
0: And, and what are some of the highlights of of John's accomplishments at IOPP? Well, again, I think
1: I'd have to sort of start off with what he did on Journal of Physics Condensed Matter. So again, you know, that was the, the journal I first had exposure to. And it was my first experience of, of, of publishing, aside from publishing the odd paper myself before, <laughs> before joining IOP. And, you know, it was that modernizing aspect, actually. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach that John had back then, which our other editors-in-chief have really emulated. And we've learned from, actually, as a publisher, how we work with our boards and editors-in-chief. Sir so John was of course highly passionate about, about the science, about publishing. He had very strong views about actually things like open access and very informed views, quite unusually perhaps for an academic researcher to have that breadth and understanding of the publishing landscape as well as the scientific landscape. Um, that for sure he brought into that editor-in-chief role and that broader scientific advisory role they had, um had with us. But I think one of the memories that I have of my first board meetings actually that I attended for for, for the journal and then other meetings I would be involved with 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 John was a how enjoyable he made them Um, they were amusing always but at the same time highly functional with real outputs and and actions if if, if you like but concrete change as a result of of a meetings so John wasn't so interested in just talking for the sake of it um He made the conversations always engaging and highly enjoyable, but there was always a really pertinent outcome of of those discussions. So they would be new editorial directions, for example, that we might want to take um, a journal or a portfolio of titles. So in terms of modernizing, absolutely, the thing that John was really cautious of or, or, or conscious of, let's say, was for the journal not just to be focused on the areas that he knew most, but to bring in all of the expertise and recognize the breadth. And to be honest, the importance of condensed matter had in relation to that journal specifically in, in really serving in really serving the field. So ensuring that the editorial board as a whole, as a collective that he was leading, absolutely has had a stronger voice and a say in terms of the editorial direction that the journal should go in from a subject point of view. Um, the other bit I, I I think really worth saying about John Achin, his his approach to um scientific value was his recognition for the longevity of science being the true measure of how valuable a piece of research was. He absolutely understood the role of metrics. And of course, you know, as previous head of department at, at Bristol University had an intimate understanding of the REF exercise, for example, here in the UK and understood yeah. metrics and how they're used. Um, and yet at the same time, also understood the limitations of metrics, whether we're talking impact factors or downloads. And I think Sir John wasn't, wasn't a person that was swayed necessarily by the perceived hot topic. Of the time, but really place a lot of value in the in in the long term scientific value of a piece of work, um, and that was something that was and and and, and still is actually, I think, an, a, a refreshing approach for an academic journal and a publisher in in, in, in a world of metrics and, and bean counting. If I can put it in those in those terms, um, and so editorially, that for me was a an actually inspiring um, uh, stance to take, and one that I I kind of always felt was. Um, in 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 kind of the a, a long term interest scientifically of not just let's say a journal or a portfolio of journals, but actually research um, research in general. Um, in terms of modernising the approach for in terms of how how that journal and and perhaps some, our, our portfolio as a whole move forward, I think John absolutely was was somebody that realised that the scientific landscape changes and and, and journals therefore need to adapt. To reflect where new directions are, are going, and one of the things he oversaw as editor in chief of Journal of Physics: Condensed Matter, for example, was the introduction of two new sections that focused on surface surfaces and interfaces, and then, of course, his own very strong area, liquids and soft matter. Um, and they were really recognising new directions and roles that condensed matter physics had in in areas that were perhaps interfacing with physical chemistry or or, or, or biophysics, specifically in relation to soft matter. Or, or polymer science, Um, and understanding at that time, at an early stage, where we we increasingly talk about how multidisciplinary research has become, but at that time it wasn't so so much spoken about, and he understood the role, particularly in condensed matter, of um, needing to bridge and work with communities that might not ordinarily use or refer to a physics journal um, or go to physics conferences, Um, and that absolutely... um, Inform some of the editorial directions and the subjects that um, Journal of Physics: Condensed Matter sort of targeted. right back at the in the, in the early 2000s when John was editor in chief, um, and has continued in, uh, continued to this day actually in terms of how that journal and other journals within the IP publishing portfolio have um, have looked to be, to edit I guess editorially modernise themselves to reflect the research landscape.
0: Really, John was a, a real pioneer in. In neutron scattering, a, a top tier scientist. He, he was knighted in 2004 for his services to science and technology. And, and much of his early work was in the development of uh, neutron scattering and techniques for studying liquids. Now, I suppose, you know, even for, for you and me, um, neutron science seems like a, a long established technique. But the reality is that it really didn't get going until after the Second World War when neutron sources in the form of nuclear reactors became available. And in the 40s and 50s, Clifford Shull and uh, Bert Brockhouse, they were the, you know, the first people, I suppose, to use neutrons to study the structure and dynamics of solids, and, and they won Nobel Prize uh, Prizes for that. But John Enderby wasn't really that far behind uh, those two. Um, in the 1960s, he teamed up with the British physicist Peter Egglestaff to devise a way to study liquid binary alloys using neutron scattering. And, and recently, uh, I've been in touch with one of John's graduate students, Alan Soper, who himself has gone on to become a leading expert um, in the physics of water. And he told me that this work was one of the most significant achievements in liquid state physics that occurred in the 20th century. And it's also inspired a a landslide of subsequent very important work in physics, chemistry, and biology. So, um, you know, John definitely did make his mark um, as a researcher, a fantastic career in physics. He also um, served as the British Adjoint Director at uh, the Institut Louis-Langevin in France, which is an international neutron source. He was president of the Institute of Physics uh, in the UK and Ireland, and he was head of the Physics Department for many years at the University of Bristol. So it, it, it's clear that service to the broader scientific community was, was very important to him and um we we we've just had a a tribute come in to John from Phil Salmon who's at the university of of Bath um, he worked with John um, at the University of Bristol. And he points out that John was famous for his nifty moves on the dance floor. And uh, I, I think that brings back some great memories of um, of IOPP Christmas parties and, you know, sort of chatting with John over a drink um, after dinner was, uh, you know, it was always a real pleasure. And um, I, I think John took a great interest in um, in sort of helping iop publishing uh employees develop their careers is that right tim
1: absolutely i mean i'd have to say that i i sort of personally benefited from some fantastic advice that that sir john gave gave me over over the years over my career at iop and the, the, the other really nice thing about him was that he was um he was very proactive about um ensuring that everybody had the opportunity to to take advantage of his network, so he was a great one for introducing um, me and other IAP publishing colleagues to his own considerable networks, um, um, from both a publishing point of view, from a scientific point of view, but for, or, or also from a from a kind of a, a people point of view. It just made the whole experience much more human when you got to know um, Sir John and his his colleagues that much that much more.
0: Well- I think there's no doubt that, that he will be sorely missed by friends and colleagues in the physics and publishing communities. And, and thanks, Tim. Thanks for taking the time uh, to chat with me about Sir John Enderby, who sadly has died age 90. Thank you, Hamish. You can read more about John Enderby on the Physics World website. Also new on the website is a review by Philip Ball of the book Einstein's Fridge, The Science of Fire, Ice, and the Universe, which was written by the documentary filmmaker Paul Sen. Ball writes that Sen's book has challenged his view of physics as being divided neatly into quantum mechanics and Einstein's general theory of relativity. While these theories do a great job at describing specifics in physics, the background of space-time, for example, or the energy levels of an atom, it is thermodynamics that defines the world that we observe, from melting ice cream to the patterns in the universe that emerged after the Big Bang. Ball points out that thermodynamics had the most practical of beginnings, having been developed to understand the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. The title of the book reflects this practicality, referring to a safer design of refrigerator created by none other than Albert Einstein and fellow physicist Leo Szilard. This was a rare foray into applied physics by the great scientist. You can find out more about this book in the Reviews section of the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, The Unsung Theory, Why Thermodynamics is as Important as Quantum Mechanics and General Relativity. Also new on the website is a fascinating article about the physics of sandcastles. Perfect beach reading if you're lucky enough to be on holiday. Look for the headline, Top tips for super sandcastles. Explore the weird world of sand. And that's by Ian Randall. Think of a telescope and a shiny dome on top of a mountain or a solar-paneled satellite will probably come to mind. But some state-of-the-art telescopes are launched on balloons which has the benefit of putting them above most of the atmosphere without the huge cost of a space mission. I'm joined down the line from Canada by Mohammed Shaban, who is doing a PhD in observational cosmology and instrumentation at the University of Toronto and the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics. Mohammed is a member of Toronto's Balloon Astrophysics Group, and he works on an experiment called SuperBit. Hi Mohammed. welcome to the podcast. Hi Hamish, thank you for having me, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure Mohammed. First things first, what exactly is SuperBit, and what does it have to do with cosmology and astrophysics?
2: Sure, so this is a bit of a loaded question. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to describe SuperBit using some words that might not make sense right now and then i'm going to explain each word before i say specifically what is superbit what i'm going to answer is what is bit which is sort of the overarching vision that superbit is a part of so bit is the idea that we want to have what's called a diffraction limited near infrared to near ultraviolet balloon-borne observatory so what do those words mean i'm going to sort of go from the back of of, of what i just said so an observatory is just a location that you use to observe the celestial sky to get some scientific data. You know, you'll know, you hear of all sorts of ground-based observatories as well as as well as orbital observatories, uh, and that's what it is. It's something you use in astronomy to collect data. Uh, and then balloon-borne is, well, it's flying on a balloon, so it's neither orbital nor ground-based, and we can talk a little bit more about the balloon aspect of it in a bit. And then I said near IR or near infrared to near ultraviolet, And that's simply a comment on the colors the observatory will be able to observe. So Superbit and the bit vision in general is centered around uh, anything that is between the very, very blue, almost near the ultraviolet range, all the way up to the very, very red, and even to the sort of lower end of infrared. And basically, when we say near IR to near UV, we mean that it's sensitive to all the colors in that range. And that, you know, gives you a nice high diversity of science that you can do. And finally, and that's sort of the more most exciting part is the diffraction limited part. So diffraction limited is a bit of a loaded word, and it simply means that a bit as as a system will be limited in its resolution alone by only the physics of the natural world. So so what do I mean by this? Normally, when you build a telescope or just any actually observer, you know including your eye or your phone's camera, um, you have a limited resolution. So that's the smallest thing. That you can resolve as an individual speck. Um, and normally this resolution is a function of a bunch of things. So imagine I have a telescope and I'm looking up at the sky here from the ground. So I have a light source up there that's radiating light at me. The light is traveling and eventually it gets to the atmosphere. So when the light hits the atmosphere, the atmosphere shakes a little bit. So the light shakes with the atmosphere and that's why stars twinkle. So this shaking already changes the shape of the object that I'm going to see and therefore changes my resolution. So that's the first thing that affects your resolution is the atmosphere. Then the light that's already been shaken by the atmosphere keeps propagating and eventually gets to your telescope. But your telescope is also not perfectly stable. It itself is shaking. So that will also affect your resolution because from the perspective of your telescope, even though the telescope is the one that's shaking, from the perspective of your telescope, the light is shaking. So now we have shaking of the light from the atmosphere and shaking of the light from the perspective of your telescope because your telescope is shaking. And finally, um, you know, your your telescope has a finite size. It's not an infinitely large thing. So there is this physical process of all waves when they go through finite apertures called diffraction. So, you know, if you think of, you know, a wave of water and you have like a a door, when the water hits the door, it's going to start spreading. And that happens with light as well. When you have a telescope and it has a finite aperture, when the light gets to the aperture, it will start spreading. And that's called diffraction. And that will also affect your resolution. So these are sort of the three main things that affect your resolution. So when you say a system is diffraction-limited, by that you mean that you've handled the atmospheric effects one way or another. You've handled the shaking effects one way or another. And the only thing that dictates your resolution is the diffraction of the light through your system which is perfectly a function of the size of the hole that is your telescope. So you can make your telescope bigger to get better resolution, smaller for worse resolution, but that's the only thing you can do. You can't do anything else. So when you say diffraction limited, we, we simply mean that this is the best res- resolution achievable at the size of that system. So the overarching bit vision is that you want to build a one and a half meter telescope that's diffraction limited, that's sensitive in the near UV, to the near-infrared that flies on a balloon and flies annually or more often. And Superbit, which is what you asked me about, is the first step towards this vision. And what Superbit is, it is also a diffraction-limited near-infrared to near-UV observatory, just like this overarching vision, except it's a half a meter instead of one and a half. Um, And the reason it's that is because in, in astrophysics in general, when you get an awesome idea like the, the overarching bit vision and you know the final product that we call Gigabit, it's often a very ambitious thing, and if you just go and do it immediately, it'll be more expensive than it needs to be and might not even work. So normally, you have what's called a Pathfinder mission, so a smaller, slightly simpler, slightly easier, but still pretty useful mission that you can put together to test whether or not this vision is possible. So the whole point of Superbit at the beginning was to build a system that will help us understand whether or not this overarching vision of a balloon-borne observatory is possible uh, and test it and, you know, see where we go from there.
0: And so, Mohammed, what's your role in SuperBit? Are you, are you designing some of the equipment that will be used in the telescope or is it the balloon that you're interested in? What, um, wh- what's your function in the SuperBit team? The
2: Superbit team can sort of be thought of as as two separate halves. There is the half that actually builds the mission and the instrument. And there is the half that is in charge of running the infrastructure that is not just used by Superbit, but used by other missions as well, which is the balloon part. So the infrastructure is ran for the long flights, which I could talk in more detail about what are these long flights and what we do with them later. Uh, But the long flight infrastructure is ran by NASA. Um, the test flight infrastructure is also run by NASA, but there's also the Canadian Space Agency and the French Space Agency, CNES, that also have infrastructures that we, we use. Uh, so this is sort of a generalized infrastructure used by missions in general. The Superbit-specific team is divided across a few institutions, which includes the University of Toronto here, the Dunlap Institute, um, Princeton University, Durham University, and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And this, you know, Durham University is where the UK contribution comes from. Um, so, within the SuperBIT team, uh, my role is pretty diverse. I uh, personally, I'm, you know, pretty much involved in almost everything uh, that has to do with SuperBIT. I guess if I had to like name something specific, um, the 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 component of SuperBIT in which I really take a, a, a more leadership role in is is the development of the electronics and computer systems that control uh, SuperBIT. Uh, But the the awesome thing in in terms of how our Superbit team works is that we're kind of all involved at least a little bit in everything because it's a pretty small team, right? At least by by astronomy standards, like we are, you know, under 30 people. Uh, So that's pretty tight knit group.
0: And, and so once um, S- SuperBit gets up into the air, what, um, what sort of observations will it make? And, um, and, and what kind of scientific questions um, could it answer? That's,
2: that's a great question. So there's actually two completely independent answers to this question. So I'll give the first one because that's already been done. And then I'm going to say what we will do. So the first, as I mentioned earlier, the first rule of SuperBit really was to test whether or not this idea is possible. And actually, SuperBit already completed that job in 2019. So in 2019, SuperBit had its final test flight out of Timmins, Ontario, with the Canadian Space Agency and CNES. During that flight, we conclusively showed that, in fact, this whole BIT vision is doable and that we could achieve diffraction limited observing with our telescope from the stratosphere. So that's sort of the first thing that SuperBit is meant to do. So it sort of completed its job as a pathfinder, as we say. Now, it happens to be that SuperBit is one of the best telescopes in the world, even though it's just a Pathfinder, and it's a fully capable science mission. So why not fly it to do some awesome science as well? So it's scheduled to launch in April, um, uh, the upcoming April, as part of the super pressure program where it will launch for 100 nights. And in these 100 nights, it will have a specific science goal, as well as what I'm called auxiliary science goals. So from the auxiliary science goals perspective is is sort of this observatory vision we talked about where, you know, members of the scientific community will tell us, hey, can you look at this specific thing for that long in these colors, and we'll use the data to to do some awesome science. But on top of that, it actually has a primary science goal. And that science goal is the following. So I'm going to say it with no context, and then I'm going to give some context. It's trying to constrain the particle nature of this thing called dark matter, as well as... Constrain the cosmological parameters that we use to understand our universe as a whole, including things like dark energy, dark matter, the expansion of the universe, and so on and so forth.
0: Well, what so so, so you're you're constraining uh, the dark sector? What in particular are you observing? Are you observing uh, specific objects, astrophysical objects, or yep. is it more of a cosmological observation that you're making?
2: So we're doing both, actually. So we are going to be doing. A cosmological observation using astronomical objects known as galaxy clusters. So, if you don't mind, do you mind if I go give you a little bit of an analogy that I like to use to sort of set the the scene for superbit?
0: Oh, go ahead, yeah.
2: So, so this analogy I like to use with our undergraduate students, and it's the following: so Imagine I give you a jar of jelly beans, and you know the you know the classic jelly bean game, where like you have to guess the number of jelly beans, and the person who gets the best guess mm-hmm, is the jelly yep. beans. Uh, and then I ask you, you know. You, You're you're a scientist with with a PhD, and and you're comfortable with with the way the scientific method works. So I ask you, can you come up with a way to determine accurately the number of jelly beans in the jar? Now, because you're a good scientist, you're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to come up with multiple ways because, you know, I want to have comparison. So you give me these three awesome methods. You say, all right, the first method, which is the easiest one, is I'm going to open the jar, take out the jelly beans one by one, and count them until the jar is empty, then I know how many jelly beans I have. And then you're going to tell me another method I'm going to use is I'm going to weigh a single jelly bean, then weigh the entire jar, then divide this mass, and that will give me the number of jelly beans. And then finally, you can say, wait a minute, I'm just going to look at the back of the jar, read the number of total calories in the jar, and I know how many calories each jelly bean is. I'm going to divide. And I'm going to get the number of jelly beans. So here, the jar is analogous to the universe, and the jelly beans is the contents of the universe. So these three flavors of experiments are... Um, a very good mapping to the kind of experiments we actually do when we're trying to understand what the universe is made of, which is we have a class of experiments that involve seeing things, a class of experiments that involve weighing things, and a class of experiments that so- involves uh, measuring the energy, and in the case of jelly beans, the calories of things. So imagine you get the following results with your jelly bean tests. So you conduct these three jelly bean experiments. When you look at the energy, it says there's 100 calories in the jar, and each jelly bean is one calorie. So you quickly conclude there must be a hundred jelly beans in the jar. And then you go, you do your, your mass experiment where you weigh the jar. It says that the jar weighs 30 grams and each jelly bean is one gram. So you conclude that there must be 30 jelly beans in the jar. And finally you open the jar and you take them out one by one and you count one, two, three, four, five, and then the jar is empty. So now you have three experiments that should be fairly robust that are just using different techniques to tell you how much stuff is in the jar and you're getting different answers. You're getting five jelly beans and you're getting from from the opening and counting, you're getting 30 jelly beans from the weighing and hundred jelly beans from the energy. So since you're a good scientist, you're not gonna jump to conclusions. Instead, what you're gonna do is you're gonna make the sort of most obvious yet most uncomfortable result that you can extract out of this data, which is that there's five jelly beans in the jar that you can touch, see, and weigh but there's an additional 25 jelly beans that you can't touch and you can't see, but you were able to weigh. And then on top of that, there's an additional 70 jelly beans that you could measure their energy, but you couldn't weigh, see, or touch. And when we do that with the universe, that's exactly what we get. When we measure the energy of the universe, you get 100%. When you measure the mass, you get 30%. And when you measure the stuff that you can see and touch, you get 5%. And that's where the sort of this dark matter, dark energy, regular matter division comes from. of the universe is made out of this regular matter that makes me, you, the stars, the planets, uh, up. Uh, 25% is, you know, this thing we call dark matter, which we know how to weigh. We can see its effect in terms of weight, but we can't see it and we can't touch it. Then there's dark energy, which we know how to measure its energy uh, contribution to the universe, but we can't see it, we can't touch it, we can't weigh it. Um, So it turns out that, because we have good theorists... They sit down and they come up with all these nice foundational ideas of what could be the origins and physics of dark matter and dark energy and how coupled they would be to their quantities. So it turns out that the more accurately you know these quantities, the more you actually find out about these systems. For instance, if we go back to the Jellybean analogy, was it exactly 30 grams or was it 30.1 or was it 29.9? And it turns out that knowing the exact amount, to some accuracy, helps you constrain your um, the kind of physics that could have dictated how dark matter and dark energy behave. Um, so what Superbit is, is a scale that's used to weigh the universe, and it does this sort of, out of those three counting weighing energy, it does the weigh. Right? So what exactly does it do and how does it do those weighing? Well, what it does is it looks at these objects in the sky called galaxy clusters. So a galaxy cluster is the following. It's basically you have, you know, stars like the sun. Then you have collections of stars known as galaxies. Um, and then you have collections of galaxies known as in galaxy clusters. And the reason galaxy clusters are interesting is because on a cosmological scale, they contain more dark matter than the rest of the universe. They're like over densities of dark matter. Um, so if you could weigh them and also look at how they're distributed... That could tell you a lot about the distribution of mass and the total mass of things in the universe which can help you constrain information about dark energy and dark matter but even more interestingly at least for me more interestingly if you can weigh these galaxy clusters and but on top of weighing them also look at how the dark matter in them is distributed is there more in the center than there is in the outskirts uh or is it you know is it more like a donut is it You know, if I get two galaxy clusters and they're smashing into each other, what's the dark matter doing? Is it interacting with itself? Is it smashing itself or is it going through itself? Um, If you can do this, you can learn a lot about the particle nature of dark matter. And this is the things that Superbit can do. Now, you might be wondering, well, okay, how can it do this? You know, that doesn't sound very simple. Um, And basically what it does is is this technique called gravitational lensing. Uh, And gravitational lensing is is the following. Basically, the way gravity works is that things with mass, like normal matter as well as dark matter, will result in the space itself. The fabric of space itself will bend. And it turns out that light travels in straight lines always. And by that means is that if I have a thing that only travels in straight lines, traveling in a thing that's bent, it will look like it's curved. Like if you imagine if you grab like a ball or like something like this, and you draw a line on it, this thing is curved, so the straight line, what you call a straight line, will have a curvature to it. So why is this interesting? Well, it means it tells me that if I look at something and I look at something behind it that's radiating light, if I can measure how much this light is bending, I can measure how much weight, how much mass there is between me and this thing that's behind it. Uh, and that's because, you know, the heavier the object is, the more it bends space, which the more the light will curve. So imagine the following situation. I have imagine I have like a perfect circle radiating light at me, and imagine there's a telescope looking at this light. So what happens is the light travels, gets to the telescope, and the telescope pre collects the light and sees a circle. Now, if you take a heavy object and put it between that circular light source and the telescope, what's going to happen is is that, as I said, the light will bend. But more interestingly, not only will the light bend more the heavier it is, but the light will bend more the closer it is to the object, which means if the object is not perfectly centered between you and that light source, some light from the circle will bend more than other light. Okay, so why is that interesting? Well, that tells me that by the time the light gets to my telescope, the thing that is a circle will no longer look like a circle. Because if you imagine light on the very right of the circle traveled straight, but light on the left bent a lot towards the left, you're gonna get an elongated like cigar. So this tells me that if I just look at the night sky and like, let's say I want to may weigh one of these galaxy clusters or equally interestingly, let's say I don't want to weigh something specific. I just want to weigh things in the universe. I just look at the night sky, look at things that are bright and far away and measure their shapes. And if I know what their shapes are supposed to be and I know what the shape I measured is, I can use that not only to find out the amount of weight there is between me and this object, I can actually find out how this weight is distributed. So you can take this and then look at these galaxy cluster objects, and not only can you weigh them to do this sort of cosmological constraints I talked about earlier, but just as interestingly, you can look at pairs of them colliding into each other and look at what the distribution of dark matter is doing. And Professor Richard Massey, uh, our Durham collaborator, has this analogy that I talks about: how always talks about how you know, uh, you know, cave people back in the day would find out what things are made out of by smashing rocks together to break them apart. And we are like the cave people of dark matter. We are just looking at giant clumps of dark matter smashing into each other to see what they break apart into. And specifically, we're really interested to see, does dark... We know we can't touch dark matter, or at least we think so, but can dark matter touch dark matter? And if you have two things smashing into each other, you can see how much they slowed each other down. And if none at all, that means they didn't touch. If a lot, then they touched a lot. If somewhere in between, they touched a little. And you can actually kind of... Uh, try to understand um, how dark matter interacts with itself. Does that answer your question?
0: So, uh, so, so essentially, you're 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 looking at gravitational lensing then, with uh, w- w- with um, with superbit. Why the balloon? Why not have the the telescope on the ground, or why not um, have the telescope on a satellite? Is there is there some sort of advantage to um, to using a balloon?
2: Right. So there, that's a great question. There's also a multifaceted answer. So, first, let's look at the ground. So, if you remember, I said we want to have these diffraction limited imagers because we want to have very high resolution imaging. The reason you want to have high resolution imaging is when you're dealing with lensing. These effects I just talked about, even though they sound these fantastical, huge effects, they're actually very subtle. And to, to measure these subtle effects, you need an incredibly high resolution imager. The problem is, is, from the ground, you're limited by the shake of the atmosphere. So, it doesn't matter how much you stabilize your system, your atmosphere is shaking. Sure, there are these things called adaptive optics that are. Pretty amazing that you can do to counteract some of this shaking. But the problem is, is with the adaptive optics, you can only do it on a small field of view, a small slice of the sky at a given time. With the kind of science that we're interested in, the kind of science that you want to do with lensing, you want to look at big slices of the sky at a given time. So you can't do that from the ground. So why ballooning? Well, ballooning is over 99.7% of the atmosphere, which means you've already solved the atmosphere problem. The only thing left is to stabilize your telescope which is essentially what Superbit is. Superbit in many ways is just a really fancy telescope stabilizer on a balloon. Um, So that's why not on the ground. So you might be wondering, well, okay, well, you know, orbital space also doesn't have atmosphere. Why not there? Um, And this is where it gets interesting. So there's obviously advantages and disadvantages to both. Uh, But the primary advantage of ballooning really comes down to cost. So, so, Missions like Superbit that are balloon-based are a fraction of a fraction of the cost of similar propellant-based missions. And that's for a few reasons. The first is the fact that the launch itself is significantly cheaper. But the second, and really the more important to why it's cheap, but also it adds some other technological advantages compared to orbital-based missions, is the fact that you can actually launch it to test it. So why is that so interesting? Well, we can operate in what we call this closed-loop engineering. And by that, I mean the following is, if I'm building a satellite, I have to build a thing that works the first time, which means I have to absorb a lot of costs, a lot of risk mitigation, and a lot of time to make sure it's right. But if I'm building a balloon-borne mission, well, because the launch is so cheap, and because I can recover the system after launch, I can just have a bunch of test flights. So what I do is, is I build a thing quickly that, I, that should work, that probably won't, and then I fly it. And I fly it for just one night. And I spend this night testing it, figuring out what works and what doesn't. It lands, I recover it, you, you update. So this means that, A, I can absorb a lot of risk in the development phase because I'm actually going to test it in the environment. So I'm not going to fly it for the science mission until it works. But that means I can just you know keep flying and keep flying it until it works. So that's, that's, that's one reason why it's cheaper. The other is because that actually aggressively reduces your time scale. So we're talking, you know, five, six, seven year timescales end to end from the day you incept the project to the day you launch it. And, you know, that's significantly faster than orbital based missions. And time is money, obviously, uh, but also time is technological development. And that's sort of the, the the third third main part, which is when you have these short timescales and the ability to do test launches, you can actually sort of track the state of the art. You no longer have to launch. This old piece of technology because that's the thing you spec and that's the thing you've tested you can just keep up with the times and fly the latest and hottest technology available so this is sort of the 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 core advantage to ballooning compared to to uh, orbital missions obviously the the disadvantage is that with orbital missions you get slightly longer well depending on the mission you can get anything from slightly to a lot longer lifetimes because you know these super pressure balloon missions are expected to last 30 to 100 nights while orbital missions you know like HST lasted like 30 years. But that being said, the price difference is so fast that if you launch a bit, a gigabit or a super bit every single year it'd still be significantly cheaper per unit observation than it is for its um, orbital counterparts. Now you might be wondering, well okay that's okay, I'm convinced that ballooning is awesome, but why do I specifically need the specs since you know I've heard of Hubble Space Telescope as you just mentioned, you know, there is JWST coming up. There is Euclid coming up. Why why, why do this? Uh, and really is because the demand is incredible. So the demand for such observatories is so high that Hubble is about uh, 85% oversubscribed. So f- by that, I mean that out of the proposed scientific observations that they receive, they only have the time to do 15%. So there's an incredible oversubscription. On top of this oversubscription, HST is an aging piece of technology, right? It's 30 years old. It's not going to last forever. Um, And it's actually the only high-resolution space-quality imager in the near UV and the blue. All these upcoming missions like Euclid and JWST and, and Roman are green and redder. Like they go from green up. Which would leave Hubble really as the only high-resolution imager with a blue to near UV capability. So something needs to come in and, and not necessarily replace Hubble, but work with Hubble, because hopefully we can keep Hubble around, right? Uh, but work with Hubble to address the blue demand. Now, on top of that all, despite the fact that there is this sort of blue gap that Superbit and Gigabit will be addressing, even if there wasn't a gap in color, even with Roman and with Euclid, and with JWST, and with Hubble, all functional, the demand is still too high to be simply addressed by these missions. So you just need to alleviate that scientific demand to get as much science as possible. And, you know, finally, really, the, the for me personally, one of my favorite advantages of, of ballooning and, and having a system like Super Gigabit, which really ties down the cost, but it, it, the fact that it makes these observations, these high-quality rare observations, more accessible, right? And no longer do you have to be Capable of producing a multi-billion-dollar mission to get this, you simply need to be, you know, able to get a few million dollars between multiple institutions to get this quality data, uh, and that makes astronomy as a field and high-quality, high-grade astronomical data significantly more accessible to, you know, universities and researchers from all sorts of institutions from all sorts of backgrounds. And for me, you know, that that's something that are, like really excites me, and I think it's really awesome.
0: And so Mohammed, you mentioned that um that the next launch is going to be um next year. And I I think it's going to be from New Zealand. So what, what 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 exactly happens? I have this I have this image of you standing, I don't know, on a mountaintop in New Zealand, sort of pushing your balloon up in the air, but I'm guessing that it's um is it a real mission? <laughs> I mean, there are lots of people involved and lots of equipment involved in launching a balloon? Right. So I'll give
2: you a half satisfactory answer, unfortunately. And the reason that is, is because I personally, and actually no one from the group has ever been involved in a super pressured launch. This is, so the kind of balloon that Superbit is launching on is a brand new piece of technology that didn't really exist before, which is these balloons that are able to last 30 to 100 nights despite day-night cycles. So there's going to be some variability from the kind of launches we're used to. So I can, I'll give you some information about it, but then I'm going to sort of cop out and give you an answer on the older balloons, which we flew on in 2019, rather than the new one we haven't really seen yet. Uh, But yes, it involves a lot of people. Uh, It involves, as I said, the NASA folks and the NASA base out in Wanak in New Zealand, and involve our Princeton, uh, Toronto, uh, Durham, and JPL teams. uh, And basically the science team, which is us, our focus is to make sure that we can integrate the system into the communication uh, infrastructure that NASA provides. that we can talk to the system and they focus on, you know, getting the balloon ready with helium and, you know, the couplings tested and coupling the the science payload to the balloon and, you know, launching it. It's no, it's not really from, you don't, you don't really like let it go from a mountain, you know, you roll out of a high bay. I'll tell you now about 2019, because I'm not sure how the, the Wanaka launches will happen. But in 2019, you roll out of a high bay, you go onto the airport launch pad at an airport. Uh, and you have the helium balloon set out, and they begin to the fill. Uh, and once your helium balloon is filled sufficiently, it's let go. And once the helium balloon slowly starts to climb, and then starts to go up, and as it's going up, it just starts tugging on your mission, uh, on your payload, and then your scientific payload starts to go up, and that's it. It's you know pretty pretty simple. Uh, now, that being said, the the super pressure launch is expected to be vastly different, but I can't tell you exactly how.
0: Okay, well that's great. Um, I mean, I hope it goes well, and um, we'll, we'll have to have you back on the podcast to um, to, to to describe what happened. Um, g- good luck with that. I mean, it really sounds like uh, an exciting project, Mohammed. And thanks so much for being on the Physics World podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Many thanks to Mohammed Shaban and Tim Smith for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast. It's called Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World. And it features two scientists who are involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics
2: World.